All right, guys, uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles, turn back to uh, Isaiah 5, want to start with our theme passage, and then we'll move into some others as well. So uh, for this particular session, the uh, passage comes from verses 11 to 12, and then 20 to 24. Uh, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. So, right, in these, these first two verses, the, the heroism in Israel or Judah has, has degenerated to the point where the only thing they're really heroic at is, is inebriated behavior and thinking. And then down in verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light, <clears throat> light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those, <clears throat> excuse me, who are heroes at drinking wine, valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. <clears throat> Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will go up like dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. <clears throat> so in these verses we see Kind of the central feature is the rejection of God's word. Thank you. <clears throat> I will need that. Um, and being wise in their own eyes, which results in rationalizing what is evil and justifying what is immoral. Um, with that kind of rationalization of sin in mind, we want to give a glimpse of where we're going this session. At a men's conference in particular, we would probably be doing, uh, particularly a conference on landmines, we'd be doing a grave disservice to one another if we didn't think carefully together uh, about sexual immorality as one of our chief temptations to indulge this kind of inebriated thinking uh, and being wise in our own eyes and, of course, all the disastrous consequences that can have for ourselves and others. So um, that's not our only focus, but it's going to be our primary focus in this session. And in light of the previous session, we could say that there are probably not many places that uh, prayerlessness is more easily explo- exploited uh, in a man's life right, by the enemy. Uh, so we want to do a deep dive now into the consideration, especially of sexual immorality, as an expression of this kind of arrogance and independence uh, from the Lord. And, and where I mainly want to do this, uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn in them to Proverbs 5. I mainly want to do this <clears throat> by tracking the argument given from father to son in, uh, in Proverbs 5. In that chapter, uh, the father is warning his sons specifically against adultery, which obviously that's a landmine we'd like to, to avoid. But the application of what he has to say there is just as natural to things like pornography consumption, uh, sex outside of marriage uh, for men who, who are not yet married, uh, a variety of other ways we may try to escape <coughs> and um, self-medicate. Now, I know there are, and I'm really, I'm really glad to see that we've got some youth uh, here with us this weekend. I um, want you to know I'm, my intent in this is not to speak in a way that is salacious, but it's no surprise to anyone in this room, youths included, that sexual folly is looking for you, <clears throat> right? You live in a world where you don't have to, I mean, you can go looking for it, but you don't have to go looking for it. It is a predator. It is looking for you. The world talks about sex in a way uh, that is ceaseless on the one hand and not very helpful on the other hand, right? If you pay attention to what the world is saying, God's Word has something much, much better to say, and so we want to give our attention uh, to that. When you think about the book of Proverbs, um, the book of Proverbs and the first nine chapters in particular are trying to detail the difference between two ways, the way of wisdom and the way of folly. And by the time you get to chapter (coughs) 5, excuse me, The father is turning his attention to the divergence uh, between wisdom and folly in the matters of sexual immorality versus sexual integrity in particular. So uh, we're going to take it in uh, in three chunks, uh, first verses one through six. Here's what what dad has to say. My son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion. And your lips may guard knowledge, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. 
her, her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. So what we see here in this chapter right at the outset is there's a warning being given. It's being given by the Father to the Son, and it's being given before the time of temptation. It may, maybe even it's being given uh, before the Son thinks he's vulnerable. Maybe it's being given to you today before you think you're vulnerable. But the Son needs to know, like the rest of us need to know, that we are vulnerable to sin and temptation, broadly speaking, but to the sin of sexual immorality and even adultery, specifically. <clears throat> Again, if we assume that we're not vulnerable, we will not be vigilant, and that'll actually make us more susceptible to the progression of this kind of sin. So here's what the Father's doing. If you're, if you're looking in, in, uh, at Proverbs 5, you just run your eyes up a few verses at the end of chapter 4 to verse 23 where it says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That's probably a verse that's familiar to many of you. The Father has taken the theme of Proverbs 4.23, and he's actually going to apply it for basically the next three chapters, 5, 6, and 7. We're only going to look at 5. But for the next three chapters, he's going to take up that theme, and he's going to apply that to the, to the, uh, to the issue of sexual morality. And it's, it's critical that he is talking about it in this fashion, because what it, what it understands or what, what it helps us to understand is the centrality of the heart, right? So here, here's, here's one way to think about it. So why, why dad's progressing in the manner that he is. The body follows the heart. The body follows the heart. In other words, the body will, will move toward whatever the heart attaches itself to, okay? The body moves toward what the heart loves. So if we would avoid the affair... <clears throat> the sexual morality, the way the Father desires, we need to have a prior concern on what nourishes our hearts. Dad's saying, watch out for this landmine. Don't, don't cultivate in your, in your heart an affection that would draw you in this direction. Now, super quick um, footnote here. The way this is framed in the book of Proverbs, he, he's not saying that women are more predatorial than men, right? just, we know that. This is an instruction from, given from a father to a son, and in particular, the core issue is not what does the forbidden woman do, but to whom does the son attach his heart. That's, that's, that's the primary issue. In other words, it's not mainly a contrast between naive and innocent men and predatorial uh, women. It's mainly a contest between lady wisdom and lady folly. Which one is the son going to unite his heart to? Which one will we... <clears throat> unite ourselves to. If the son binds his heart to Lady Folly, as expressed in the Forbidden Woman, then what it will primarily show is that his heart is not attached to God. That's what it's mainly going to show. Now, the chief strategy of, uh, of temptation that we see at work here is deception. I don't know if you, you noticed in uh, verses 3 and 4, her lips drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, right? Uh, deception. And yet, verses, or sorry, that was verse 3, verses 4 and 5, uh, their end is bitterness and piercing and death. In other words, here's what dad's saying to his son. Before, before he's tempted, he's saying, son, you're going to encounter this woman, and it's going to seem awfully enticing. She's going to appear smooth and sound sweet, but it does not end the way that you think it will. So, having said that, this, this attempted deception only uh, succeeds, as we said, if his heart is willing to go along with the self-deception, uh, um, self which is why vigilance of heart is of primary concern, right? Heart before behavior. Now, um, so what that's going to lead us to do is we want to give a little attention to, to kind of three tactics of sin. We're going to do an, an anatomy of sinful self-destruction here, three, three tactics of sin, and then we're going to look in the next couple of chunks of the passage at the Father's countermeasures to these, to these tactics. So here's the first tactic of sin uh, that we see at work in this passage. Uh, sin uh, seeks to cultivate our participation in our own destruction by going to work on self-pity and pride. It seeks to cultivate our participation in our own self-destruction by going to work on self-pity and pride. So for example... <clears throat> Life gets hard, and we may find uh, that we begin to bathe our woundedness, our sense of hurt, 
uh, disappointments, all of which may be genuine, in self-pity. That may begin to breed a sense of what I think I deserve as contrasted with what I'm actually getting. And I might even begin to think, this is when it gets really dangerous, I might even begin to think, I'm the only one who really and truly sees the situation for what it is, right? So so take it down into my echo chamber of self-pity, and I'm the only one who truly sees. Maybe even God doesn't really see, right? And that can fuel this self-reliance that we were talking about in the last session. And where that pits me in my self-assessment versus God's assessment of me I can, I can begin to nurse that self-pity in hiding and secrecy. Maybe at first it's just in the inner thoughts, right? The inner monologue. But leave that unchecked long enough and, and, and actions may start to peek their head out of the ground to see what we can get away with to kind of nurse that self-pity, right? To, to, to medicate. Um, and so rather than, than repent, rather than return to the Lord, we, we make increasing um, prescriptions for our own life that, that result a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more to bondage to, to sin. <clears throat> In the case of adultery, specifically, the first time that that appeal is reciprocated by another person, that is, that moment is supercharged with buzz, electricity, excitement. Let me be absolutely clear. If, if you are on the cusp of adultery specifically today, and maybe there's someone here who is, that is not love. It may feel like it, but it is a pale imitation. It is fueled by lust, and lust is fueled by discontent, which Clay, again, did a great job of expounding for us last night. Lust always wants what it does not have. It is always angling for more than last time. That's why one look at pornography is never enough. That's why masturbating one time does not kill the desire. That's why the guy who has one affair, usually over the course of time, will have another one. What's happening in the situation that we're describing? It's super deadly, right? Because you've got the double whammy of a person who is blind to danger, who at the same time thinks he sees clearly. That's the most dangerous kind of blindness to have, right? It's one thing to be blind and know it and so ask for help. It's an altogether different situation to be blind but think you see and turn away from the wisdom of God's word or the agency of God's ambassadors who would give you counsel, who would give you warning, who would hold you accountable. A former pastor, a friend of mine from from another state years ago, uh, told the story of a close friend of his who was spending time alone with a woman who was not his wife, doing things like going to dinner and movies. And uh, my pastor friend warned him. He said, that's really dumb. Stop doing that. No, I'll be fine. Nothing would ever happen. What happened? His body followed his heart. He was warming his heart with closeness and companionship over forbidden fires. And it was companionship, by the way, that he wasn't pursuing with his, with his wife. And before he knew it, he had the affair and he set those he really loved ablaze. Disastrous consequences. Bitter regret. <clears throat> Part of wisdom is having the humility to recognize that if I walk alone, I am not wise, and I do not see the very clear and real threats that are there and exist. Um, In reality, guys, contrary to the whispers of self-pity, which says, boy, your biggest problem is the way others are are treating you and, you know, not regarding you or honoring you or paying you or whatever, in contrast to those whispers, the sin inside of us is much more dangerous than the hardships outside of us. It's not to say that the hardships outside of us don't exist or that they aren't significant, but they are not the most dangerous enemy. So we need to consider 
Where are we? Where are you giving in, perhaps, to self-pity? Maybe you're not all the way downstream to the cusp of an affair, but where are you indulging and nursing that kind of self-pity, that kind of independent assessment of your life as contrasted with God's? Where are you, perhaps, being cultivated? Not just for an affair, all kinds of sins. This is the, the slippery slope we've been talking about. So that's the first aspect of sin's deception. Here's the second. The, the two and three kind of build on the, on the one that comes before. Um, not, only did it, not only does sin and temptation go to work on pride and self-pity, but it does so specifically by means of a word contest. Specifically by means of a word contest. We saw that in Genesis 3 in the previous session, right? It's, it's always been that way. God says, in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Serpent says, no, you won't. Here in Proverbs 5, it's a contest between the Father's words and the honeyed words of the forbidden woman. It's a contest between the words of wisdom and the words of folly. They're, 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 they're offering, enticing with different words an alternate path. And as we've said already, right, sin, sin proceeds on the back of false promises. Otherwise, it wouldn't have an appeal. So, so it, it offers something that, that looks appealing, and Dad is saying it doesn't end the way you think it will. <clears throat> you see in verse 4, her appeal is sharp as a two-edged sword. In this case, it's a sword designed ultimately and finally to kill and destroy. But kind of hearkening back to our last session, we didn't mention the verse, but we did, we did refer to the, to the concept. You, you know what else is sharp as a two-edged sword, right? Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of joints and marrow, yes, even to the division of soul and spirit. This sword, this sword pierces, it cuts, it performs surgery, but it does so to remove folly and to heal. And here's the, here, so here, again, here, here's the issue, the word contest. We will all be cut by one word or the other. We'll be cut by false words and false promises, or we'll be cut by true. The question is, will, be, will we be cut to pieces or cleansed of folly? Um, Howard Hendricks was a uh, much-beloved uh, Bible professor, New Testament prof at Dallas Seminary for decades and decades. And over the course of his ministry there, he had uh, the opportunity, the sad opportunity, to minister to 246 fallen pastors, and in this fallen into sexual immorality. That's a, that's a sad ministry to undertake, isn't it? So if it can happen to them, it can happen to any of us. Um, he passed away a few years ago, but he collected his findings from working with these guys over the course of, of many, many years, and he distilled his findings into four key themes, right? There were four common themes um, all, that were almost universally true in the case of these 246 fallen pastors. It would be interesting to talk about all of them. The one that I want to mention now, he said, he said, each of the men had made himself more vulnerable by basically ceasing to have a regular time of prayer, Bible reading, and worship. Personal prayer, personal Bible reading, and worship. Now, now think about that for a second. What he didn't say, and what was not true, is that these men completely disengaged the word. What happened instead, right, so they're, they're, they're professional pastors. They're doing a lot of stuff with the word, but their relationship to the word became professionalized. It became third person. It became analysis, not adoration. It became telling the congregation about him and not inviting that relationship deep into the bosom of his own soul. These pastors, guys, I mean, this sin is so slippery. Handling the oracles of God as a means to some other end than primarily enjoying God himself. Isn't that great, right? <laughs> you take the greatest treasure and use it in the service of an idol. Maybe, maybe, maybe trying to impress <clears throat> other people. It's not, not, it's not just pastors who, who are at risk, right, with how, how they handle the word and allow the word to handle them. It, it can happen to any of us. Uh, sometimes maybe we wait until the moment of desperation to make an appeal to the word like some kind of talisman, right? 
At that point, it's often too late. Here's aspect number three of sin's deception. So, he goes to work on pride and self-pity. Uh, does so uh, by means of a word contest. But again, as, we, as, we've, been, as we've been indicating now, um, this context seeks to cultivate slow and subtle drift, slow and subtle compromise. Again, if the, if the enemies of our soul went zero to 60, if, if they showed up and said, this is what I'm aiming to do with you, we wouldn't fall for it, right? It'd be, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be too obvious. The world, the flesh, and the devil are playing the long game, right? It's death by degree. They don't want you to see where things are going so that you are, com- are comfortable making the next little, little compromise. That's why in Genesis 4, when God warns Cain about his own bitter envy of his, of his brother and, and God's acceptance of Abel's sacrifice, when God warns Cain, he says, sin is crouching at your door. If you've ever seen... Um, uh, large predator cats, or even if you've ever, if you have a pet cat and you watch it in the backyard trying to, you know, stalk a blue jay or something, what do they do? They, they, as, they, as they sneak and prepare to pounce, they try to make themselves look as small as possible. They don't want you to see what's going on. They don't want you to notice <clears throat> the predatory intentions <clears throat> that, are, that are sneaking up. Here's how um, uh, Puritan pastor John Owen made the point. It's, it's pretty, pretty compelling, I think. He said, sin always aims at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, if it has its own way, it will go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism if allowed to develop. Every rise of lust if it has its way, reaches the height of villainy. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. Diminishing returns, right? Check out this last sentence. The deceitfulness of sin is seen in that it is modest in its first proposals. But when it prevails, it hardens men's hearts and brings them to ruin. So here's what we can't do. We cannot keep sin at bay by feeding it. One of the most foolish things I might ever attempt is to think that I could indulge just a little bit of sin and not be changed into the kind of person who wants more. Right? That's, that's, what, that's what diminishing returns invites. If I indulge a little, I am changing myself into the kind of person who has an appetite for more. Uh, next chunk in Proverbs 5. So uh, verses 7 to, to 14. The father's going to start giving his, okay, if those are the warnings, uh, here's the countermeasures. <clears throat> or at least, at least the first wave. Verse 7, And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not pre- depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, How I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. So the first countermeasure from dad <clears throat> is a defensive maneuver. Do you see that in, in verse 8? Stay far away. You're not as strong as you think you are. You're not as immune as you think you are. In fact, right, tying this to some New Testament passages, Paul and Jesus would say, do whatever radical thing needs to be done to cut off the access of these deceptive words into your life that go down to death. Paul, remember in 1 Corinthians 6, flee sexual immorality. Jesus, more graphically in Matthew 5, gouge out the eye that causes you to sin. It's a grisly metaphor, isn't it? But it's saying, do whatever you need to do to keep your way clear of Lady Folly's path. I had a a student um, years ago uh, he, he didn't attend Christ community, so nobody here would know him anyway. Uh, this was back before the days of uh, smartphones. It was, we, were, we were doing clamshells uh, back then. And so his, his temptation to, to consume pornography was not facilitated by his phone, uh, but it was facilitated by his laptop. And so we, we, we talked, and um, you know, he was repentant and, and humbling himself, and 
And one of the decisions that he made and then followed through on, right, is very much in the spirit of what Dad is saying here, what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, he dumped his laptop. It made his life very inconvenient. In order to write his papers, he had to go to the computer lab at the hours the computer lab was open. Or he had to borrow his roommate's laptop in the company of his roommate. Because he knew he just, right, there's, there's too much poison getting in. I've got to close that door. It made his life really inconvenient. But how much is convenience worth if it's costing you the numbing of your soul? Well, Dad also uh, wants to help disabuse the false promises of the forbidden woman by showing their outcome, right? So this is so helpful. He, he does with his son, he examines with his son exactly the part of the picture that the enemy does not want us to look at. You see that in verses 11 to 14? That's bitter regret. When he says this isn't going to end well, this is, what he's, this is what he's talking about. And when he comes to his senses... He does not fundamentally blame the forbidden woman. He doesn't even fundamentally blame God. You know who he blames? He blames himself. He says, here's, here's my paraphrase of verse 13. I embraced the wrong words. I embraced the wrong words. That's what he says. Now, for all the heartache of verses 11 to 14, there is hope even for those who have gone too far, I think that while those verses represent a very bitter confession, I think there's still a confession. And so in the next session, we're going we're gonna to come back and we'll, we'll look at this guy a little bit more and consider what it looks like to come back and confess, even after de- detonating a landmine like, like this one. All right. Verses 15 and following, this is dad's tactic number two. So we've had the defensive tactic, avoid. Here's the offensive tactic, verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. So, Right, switching to, switching to offense now. And, and in, in the switch to offense, there is clearly a very erotic celebration of marital sexual intimacy. That's important to notice. Because what the Father doesn't say here, and what the Gospel never says anywhere, is just don't do bad stuff. That's not the Gospel. Right? The, the Gospel always involves a better than. Forsake less for the enjoyment of more right? Forsake self-rule for the kind of person that God designed you to be. That's true in marriage. In marriage, there is better sex than the forbidden woman or the internet offers. And the gospel offers love and delight that is better still. So the warning is not a summoning to less again, but to more. Now, how is that the case with sex in marriage? How is sex in marriage better than what the forbidden woman offers or the pornographic image offers, it, it, it has to do with what sex means. And so I'm going to compress, I'm going to digest something that we could do in, in more detail. Um, if, if you want more, I can point you to some sources. I think you guys do a good job talking about this here too. So uh, here's what sex is. Sex in marriage is a, it's very it's theological, but stay, stay with me, it'll, it'll make sense. It's a covenant renewal ceremony, okay? That's what sex is, a covenant renewal ceremony. Marriage is a covenant relationship. Uh, and, and in that respect, it is, it is similar to and patterned after many of the covenants in the Bible. Covenants are one of the chief structures by which God advances redemptive history, 
right? And, and so you're probably familiar with many of these. There's God's covenant with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and the new covenant. And in biblical covenants, biblical covenants are always associated with or expressed by a sign or a symbol, okay? There's always a sign that, that goes with the covenant. And the sign is not the totality of the covenant, but it is symbolic of the covenant. It is expressive of the covenant. So in the case of Noah, the sign of the covenant with Noah is the bow and the cloud. In the case of Abraham, the sign is circumcision. In the case of the new covenant, there's actually two signs. There's a sign of entrance, and there's a sign of ongoing communion. The sign of entrance is baptism. That happens once, not to be repeated. But there is a sign of ongoing fellowship. That's the Lord's Supper. You guys are having a Lord's Supper service tomorrow night. Take this thought into your Lord's Supper. Right? Any of you guys are doing a Lord's Supper service tomorrow? Okay. So take the, right, check this out. <clears throat> when we eat the Lord's Supper, that is an embodied way with our taste buds right, with our tongues, with our digestive system, that's an embodied way of saying, I still do. That's an embodied way of saying to the Lord Jesus Christ, I still do, in response to his, I still do, over you. It's a, it's a form of renewing the covenant. Now, now the, obviously, the, the bread and the wine are not uh, literally, you have a whole other discussion on that, right, um, the, the, the bread and wine are not literally the body and blood of Jesus. They're symbolic of that. They're, they're reflective of that. And so, so it's a, a sign that is symbolic of continued communion, right? Continued fellowship, continued participation in this relationship with Christ. Well, guess what's true of marriage? The covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, it is a covenant relationship. It also has two signs, one at the beginning and one of continued communion. The beginning is the wedding day celebration, right? A big festival, everybody gets together, I now pronounce you husband and wife, so on and so forth, great day. God willing, you only ever do that once. Right? You, don't, you, don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't go back and have the wedding again the next week and the next year. Now, some couples will have, um, they'll do vow renewal ceremonies like on a 25th anniversary or a 50th, some kind of milestone anniversary, and that can be very meaningful to the couple. But the sign... The, the, their embodied sign that I still do is the sign of sexual intimacy that is shared in the privacy of the marriage bed between him and her. Here's what, here's what no couple ever did. No couple who had a healthy relationship ever went on the honeymoon, consummated the relationship, and said, that ought to hold us for 50 years. Right? If they have a healthy relationship expressed in healthy sexual intimacy, it is right for that appetite to grow and desire to be expressed again and again and again and again as often and as necessary till death do us part. Now here's the other, almost done with this bit. Um, we don't celebrate the sign of the covenant in the absence of the reality of the covenant. So think about the Lord's Supper and what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, some of you are taken in an unworthy manner, as a result of which some have, have gotten sick and others have even died. Now, there's a whole discussion about what it means to eat in an unworthy manner, but I, I guarantee it includes this. Eating the Lord's Supper when my heart does not actually confess faith in what those elements represent and symbolize. If I do not believe in the shed blood and broken body of Jesus to cover my sins, and I eat, that, that's eating in an unworthy manner. So, too... Is, is the pursuit of sexual intimacy outside the marriage covenant. But again, do you, you, you see how what God is, what God is requiring when he, when he links the sign of sexual intimacy to the covenant of marriage? You see what he's requiring? And all the things he says no to are actually for our good, for the maximization of our enjoyment, saying don't settle for less, here's more. Don't be so easily satisfied. Sex is profound in marriage. It is meaningful, it is sacred, it is it's a big deal. That's, 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 why, that's why there's the prohibition on sex outside of marriage. And that's why there's a place for sacred delight with sex inside of marriage. <clears throat> Don't settle for less, son. So the first offensive exhortation in, uh, in, in, in Proverbs 5, uh, found in verses 18 to 20, is, is basically delight in the wife of your youth. You know what dad's saying here? He's saying, drink the good stuff, son. 
That's what he's saying. In, in all the appropriate erotic ways that are true in marriage, right? Now, in the last five verses of this chapter, he uses the word intoxicate three times. He uses the word intoxicate three times. In verse 19, uh, he, he, he exhorts his son uh, to be intoxicated in, his, in the love of his wife, right? T- drinking the good stuff, intoxicated. In verse 20, he says, using it in a, in a negative sense, he says, why would you be intoxicated by the embrace of an, of an adulteress with a, with a forbidden one? Why, 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 would you, why would you intoxicate there, right? And then in verse 23, it's not as easy to see in some of our translations. It says, he dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, my translation says he's led astray. It's the same, same word, though. Because of his great folly, he is intoxicated. Hero at inebriated thinking. That's a small, small prize, isn't it? Dad's saying, fight fire with fire, son. Fight the fire of false intimacy with the fire of true and better intimacy. And notice, this is important for, for married guys. I know, I know there are some unmarried guys among us. I've got some things to say to you too. Um, but for the married guys here, he says, in verse 18, he says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. He does not say rejoice in your wife while she is young. There's a difference between the two, right? Here's, okay, so again, we're thinking, we're thinking of better beauty and better intimacy. And you, it's, you, you catch what dad is saying here? He's saying, son, may you grow to find her more beautiful on your 50th wedding anniversary than you did on your wedding day. And in, 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 in the context of a healthy marriage that is being fueled by in Christness of the husband and wife, that's entirely possible. Bodies falling apart, hair falling out, right? Wheelchairs and crutches. And more beauty than was there 50 years ago, right? That too. <laughs> there's, also, there's also that. <clears throat> now, <laughs> we'll just let that one play out for a second. I can't reel that one in too quickly. Now, uh, it is true that as time goes by, to your blue pill comment, <laughs> the nature of romantic love may grow more stable and less torrid at times. And uh, while there are disadvantages to that, there are some pluses that go with that as well, but, but here, here's the point. Some of us married guys maybe aren't rejoicing in the wife of our youth the way that we should. Maybe, maybe we've become complicit in letting the enthusiasm for the wife of our youth become more temperate than it should. In some cases, maybe that's because we have diminished our mental savoring of our spouse by the giving of it to some other image or some other person. If that's all that's happened, it's already gone too far, right? But we've seen that sin is not so easily satisfied so as to think that it might be held at bay there. Maybe, maybe, maybe we've become critical in spirit. Maybe, we see, maybe, maybe it's really easy to see the things that frustrate you about your wife and you're having a harder time seeing what thrills the heart of God about her. So I actually I have, I have an assignment for husbands. It's in your, uh, they're not course packs, notes, questions on your table. So you, go ahead and grab those and flip to the, to the one on um, this session, self-pleasure, so d- destruction, disastrous consequences of, of self-pleasure, right at the bottom. Right? So I'm not, I'm not gonna do a lot with this now because this is for you for later. But it's an assignment for husbands uh, and, and it's something I'd recommend for you to, to do in the course of the next seven days, to, to ponder things about your wife's, not, not even merely physical attractiveness, but spiritual beauty and how that's been expressed towards you. As a way of incur- encouraging us all, right, myself included, to, to deepen the intoxication on that kind of love. Okay, so just, you know, that's, that's there for your, for your benefit. Uh, single guys. <coughs> What about you? I know there are some of you here. A single guy uh, desires to be married, 
currently has no outlet uh, for uh, sexual passion, right? So what, what do you do with that? Desire to be married, desire to enter the context in which uh, lovemaking is a beautiful thing in the eyes of God. What, what do you do with that? Here's the most important, there's a lot of things you could say. Here's the most important thing to say. That desire for intimacy is not wasted, even if you never get to marry in this life, okay? So listen, we're about to say, we're, we're talking about some things that are hard. But it is important to understand that in God's economy, hard is not necessarily the equivalent of bad. Hard is often God's instrument for good in our lives. And this is one of the, right? The stewardship of our sexuality is one of those. Those desires are not wasted. So the desire for sexual intimacy, we can call that little eye intimacy, that drive. We said nobody goes on the honeymoon, says that'll hold us for 50 years. What does that mean? That means that no act of sexual intimacy can permanently slake the thirst of the intimacy for which we were created. If we were going to put this in terms that C.S. Lewis might use to say, he would remind us that if nothing in this life, if nothing in this life can permanently fulfill the desires of your heart, you must be made for another world. In other words, this is true of everyone, our desire for intimacy our desire for communion, our desire for companionship, which cannot perfectly be met in this life, is a pointer to the fact that we were made for capital I intimacy with Christ that will go on and on forever in the next life. So if you're single and you're not married and you're wondering why in the world do I have this raging sex drive that I can't do anything with, your sex drive is telling you the most important thing you need to know about yourself, which is the most important thing any of us needs to know about ourselves. We were made for intimacy with God. Does that mean the path is going to be easy? No. Does that mean that it will be free from hard? No. Does it mean that it will be worth it? Absolutely. Let's push it one step further. Not just single guys. Maybe, maybe somebody here today uh, finds themselves tempted with a pattern of same-sex attraction. Maybe you share that with somebody, maybe you haven't. Maybe, if anybody ever thought, right, seeking to be faithful to the stewardship of sexuality according to Scripture, maybe a person like that thinks, if anybody else has ever thought, my sex drive is wasted, right? What good is it? Was it is that, if, if, if that's you, if, if that's a pattern of, of, of temptation, a pattern of attraction, and, and you're seeking to steward that faithfully before the Lord, is that really, really hard to live in faithful celibacy before the Lord with that pattern of attraction? You better, yeah, yeah, it's hard but your sex drive isn't wasted. Your yearning for intimacy, even in those circumstances, is telling you the most important thing about yourself. And, and, and so, right, as, as, as you move from the current era into the new heavens and the new earth, all, all that's going to be, the shadow's going to give way to fulfillment. Let me put it that way. Right, Jesus says in Matthew 22, in heaven there will be neither marrying nor giving in marriage. So what there won't be is sex in heaven. What there won't be is marriage in the way that we know it now in heaven, but that's not because marriage won't exist. The shadow will dissolve into the reality, and when the reality of capital in marriage, Christ's church relationship, is experienced in its full intimacy, you know what's true? We won't miss sex and marriage that we knew for 50 years in this life. If you've got a healthy marriage, that can be hard to believe. Here's how we know it's true. Uh, biblical structures of foreshadow and fulfillment always work like this. The foreshadow is good. What it points to is better. And when what it points to comes to pass, the foreshadow is eclipsed. Appreciated, um, but we don't desire to live under the terms of the foreshadow. Here's, right, here's how I know this. Uh, so you guys live under the new covenant. Your coverage is under the blood of Christ. I'm, I'm very confident in saying that nobody here in the past week has really pined with agony or a sense of unfair treatment that you didn't get to take a goat or a bull to a priest in a temple for the slitting of its throat for the covering of your sins. You're not feeling shortchanged because you didn't get to do that, right? Why? Because the foreshadow was good in its time, but what it has pointed to is better, and when what is better is enjoyed, we can appreciate the foreshadow, but we don't pine for it. There's a day coming when that will be the case for all of us, and our drives for intimacy will be met by the one perfectly for whom they were made and to whom they point. So, um, 
Ray Ortland, in, in his commentary, he, he puts it like this. I, I appreciate his this succinct, succinct statement. He says, the Bible's not shy about sex. Its message is clear. Sexual folly destroys, sexual wisdom satisfies, and Christ is better than the best sex. I think that's very well put. Right? Now, because of Christ, so Christ is the best blessing. Because of Christ, this, remember, remember David from Psalm 27 in the previous session, he wants the presence of God, but the presence of God is dangerous for sinners, so what do we do about that? And, you know, okay, because of Christ, the presence of God is the very best blessing of all for the believer. Down in verse 21, it says, a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all of his paths. Boy, life before the face of God, before the eyes of the Lord, that, that's a protective blessing for the obedient son. But that is a scary reality for the one who would attempt to hide and self-cover and indulge patterns of behavior in, in secrecy that, that, are, that are intoxicating in the negative sense of that word. So, so contrast that sense of hiding with, um, you remember, remember the life of Joseph when he's uh, sold into slavery into Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife keeps throwing herself at Joseph? Uh, Joseph has literal and multiple encounters with the forbidden woman. You remember what he said? This is verse 9 of, of Genesis 39, if, you just, if, you're, if you're a note taker and you want to jot that down. He said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? In other words, in the tumult of being enticed by the forbidden woman, he's not forgetting God, but he is remembering God and he is embracing the fact of life and the presence of God, even though he knows his life is about to get a whole lot harder for turning down Potiphar's wife, right? And it does. So dad, Proverbs 5, wants the heart of the son to grow strong like Joseph's. If the heart is growing strong in that direction, there could be 20 forbidden women throwing themselves at you. And you would flee. Because there would be no appetite for what is ultimately bitter fruit. So how is God's word specifically warning you in this session? Whether it pertains to sexual immorality, some other form of self-pleasure outside of God's a pattern for us, where are you resisting the humility of fleeing sin? Where do you think yourself strong when you're weak? Where do you think you have sight where you're blind? Uh, friends, when we look at a sin like sexual immorality, this is straight out of Proverbs 5, the beginning promises sweetness, the end is death. When we look at coming to Christ or coming back, the beginning is death. It starts with the death to self, right? But the end is incomprehensibly sweet. So we're going to turn to table time here in just a second, and this may be a very scary one to discuss. I think it's also very, very important. So if the Spirit is prompting you to make a confession, to appeal for help in this particular area, I would encourage you to yield to that work. Some of us maybe need to uh, confess that we're more vulnerable than we thought. Some may even have apologies to make to wives when they go home later on today. But the men at your table are ready to serve you and pray for you, to encourage you, to walk with you, uh, even as they share their own burdens. And this may be one of the landmines for which the specific resources of, uh, of, of, of counseling opportunities would be important for you. So that'll, that'll be available after the final session. Uh, so keep that in mind. Maybe your head's spinning right now and you have no idea how to admit your weakness and need. Well, let me give you one more image. I said I'd give you, give you, give you a passage and an image uh, for each of these sessions. Here, here's another one that maybe helps us to recognize there is no image to manage at the foot of the cross. Uh, this, is, this, is, uh, this is, the passage is Luke 22, um, the python in there, that's that's Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. We, we don't, just to be clear, no verse in the Bible says there's an albino python whispering in Jesus' ear in the Garden of Gethsemane. However, while there is poetic license taken in that, what Luke 22 does tell us is that Jesus is contemplating going to the cross for sins he didn't commit. That it, it's, it, he, he's so not, right? He, he's only ever been the object of the Father's delight. He's about to be the object of the Father's wrath as a consequence of which he is sweating drops of blood. There is agony in this contemplation. And that is a picture 
the, the passage and, and, and even, the, even the illustration that, that, that Gibson took from it, I think, I think that's a picture of strength, right? Someone stronger than we. It looks weak, but it's, it's strong. And here's why. In, in Gethsemane, <clears throat> Jesus, ha- I mean, he's right on the cusp of arrest uh, and, and, and betrayal and crucifixion, trial and trumped-up charges, what have you. In Gethsemane, he had the cover of darkness and privacy with which to self-protect if he so chose. He knows what's coming. In the cover of darkness, he could have hightailed it out of there, not told anyone where he was going. But he refused to do that. For us, maybe it's not always the case, but it is often the case, that we feel the tug of sexual immorality in dark and private places, right? Living in the dark rather than in the light. Sexual morality promises that what you do in the dark doesn't matter. That what you do in the dark won't have consequences. That you can play with fire and not get burned. But we have seen where that kind of thinking and living uh, leads us. Let's pray and then move right into table time. Lord, our appeal in the moments to come is that you would begin the process of performing the surgery that cuts off the head of destructive thinking where it may be found in us. And to be sure that that may be in in matters of sexual immorality, but it may be in other areas. So ask, Lord, that your spirit would be at work, um, prompting um, conviction and conversation where it needs to happen. This can feel like a substantial bondage um, that, uh, from, from which one does not know how, how to escape. And, and so we need to turn to you in this time. I pray that you would fuel uh, that kind of faith and the repentance that makes us wise. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.